Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash spookshow. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Tonight, I will kill all of God, what? Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Beware the moon, David. Go now. Heaven help you. American Spook Show, bringing you the summer of the world. Welcome to yet another edition of the All-American Spook Show podcast. As always, I'm Josh, and I'm joined here with my friend Will. And the Professor Smoke. Hello. Donnie could not be with us this week. Uh, He's on assignment, so uh, we're just going to power on without him this week. And uh, hopefully he'll be here next week for uh, uh, History of Werewolves Part 3. That's our next uh, Spook Show Spotlight episode, which will be next Monday at 6 p.m. East. So uh, be sure to be on the lookout for that. Um, We'll go ahead and throw out the usual information here off the top if you want to email us or contact us. And uh, I I should note, anytime, you know, if you guys want to email us or anything, uh, if you got a question or anything, we'll read them right here on the podcast. So uh, if you want to hear your question be read or, you know, any any thoughts you want to send back to us, just email us at allamericanspookshow at gmail.com. And you know, like I said, we'll read those uh, here on the air. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at AA Spook Show. You can find us on Instagram, of course, Facebook, uh, by searching for All American Spook Show. We have a YouTube page where every Thursday now we have a new uh, video being posted up called Deadline Horror News. That's pretty much every Thursday. Well, not pretty much. I mean, over the last three or four weeks, it's been every Thursday. That's been coming out over on uh, YouTube, so you can find that by searching for All-American Spook Show. And we have a Public page where you can uh, buy our logoed merchandise and another handful of cool designs that we have over there. That's available at Public, And, of course, uh, you can catch us on the Slasher app, you know, which is kind of like the horror version of podcast. Or uh, podcast, good Lord. The horror version of uh, Facebook. We are the horror version of podcasts, not Slasher. (laughs) But, but, uh, yeah... uh, but any of these things that I just mentioned, you can you can. There's a link down in the show notes here. You can. There's a link to all those things. They're all there, lined up and ready to go. And of course, the big thing is we have a Patreon page. That's Patreon.com/slash AA Spook Show. Uh, you can go over there every Tuesday. We have a new video mini-sode that we post up uh, over there. Because for for a while there, we were doing every Tuesday and Thursday, but we decided to kind of stagger it between cool Patreon exclusive content there on Tuesdays. And then on Thursdays, you'll get the Deadline Horror News over on YouTube. So that's kind of the split that we're working with right now. So, you know, we've got new content coming at you every Monday with the podcast, every Tuesday on Patreon, and every Thursday on YouTube. So there's no excuse for you not to dive into the world of the Spook Show every week, three days a week. Uh, We've got new stuff coming at you. So uh, what are we here for today? Where We're going to continue the Summer of the Wolf series with our next movie review, and that is An American Werewolf in London from 1981. I guess, you know, before we get into uh, the background and the movie itself, I'll, I'll go ahead and toss to the trailer. We'll just go ahead and get that out of the way here for An American Werewolf in London from 1981. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? It could be a lot of things. 
Yeah. A coyote. There aren't any coyotes in England. I'm sorry I'm upsetting you, David, but you don't understand what's going on. I understand, all right. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Yes, that's right. David, stop! I'm going to the police. Jack was right. Jack is dead! Yeah, Jack is dead, and six people are dead. There's going to be a full moon tonight. I'm going to the cops. Oh, be serious, would you? Oh! You can't let them go. Should the world know our business? It's murder, then. Then murder it is. Excuse me. I'm a werewolf. A werewolf? Naked American men stole my balloons. What? And there you go. That's the trailer for that. So, Smoke, I guess I'll, I'll kind of toss to you first. I mean, obviously, this isn't the first time you've seen this movie. So, uh, what were your initial reactions? Maybe go back in time to the first time you watched it and everything, and uh, uh, just take us a trip to, you know, on a trip to where kind of where you got to now with this movie. Uh, I, I, I don't remember the exact year of it, but I do know that it was one of the movie channels in the 80s. I had to guess probably around 80, 84, 85, around in there. Mm hmm. And uh, that's where I first saw it, and it was, it, uh, it was. I thought it was pretty uh, effective as far as it being, you know, it kind of scared me as a kid. I mean, I at that time I saw it, I was probably maybe eleven, that ten or eleven somewhere in there. To see, I, I vividly remember the scene in the, on the moors, you know, when they're walking across the moors right before the first initial werewolf attack and whatnot. So I remember that scared scared me as a kid. And then just the uh, intermittent humor throughout it was like kind of offsetting as a kid at first too. Like yeah. you know. You got some horrible-looking guy, you know, the guy, his friend that gets mauled and all that and comes back in the vision. You know, like, what is this about? Yeah. So as a kid, uh, yeah, it was effective in that it scared me. The effects were cool. And uh, the comedy was uh, was just kind of like out of nowhere type stuff. And I didn't realize until later, of course, that it was John Landis. And uh, so hits the comedy and whatnot. So, yeah, but I enjoyed it that first time as a kid. And then uh, I saw it, you know, subsequent times since then. Quite a few times, and 
and I definitely appreciate it every time I watch it. Yeah, I'd have to say for myself, probably the first time I watched it might have been HBO back in the day. Like I think I've told this, you know, little tale before a number of times. You know, when we're doing, especially when we're doing older movies like this, uh, we used to like set a tape on the weekends or say like on a Friday night, you'd set up a, a, a VCR tape, you know, to just like record starting at like midnight. And then you just record whatever the hell came on HBO or Cinemax or whatever throughout the night. And then the next day you could pop it in and say, all right, well, what came on? You know, I think it was one of those times back, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, that we, we had taken you exactly trying to record. Whatever would just come on in the middle of the night. I mean, you know, well, <laughs> nothing in I mean, particular. They call it they call it Skinamax for a reason. I don't remember. I don't remember anything about that. Wait, is this is this where all the Emmanuel jokes come from? <laughs> this is where I used to tape nonstop Emmanuel and the <laughs> watch him the next day. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that was the first time I ever. What about you, Will? When do you recall like uh, watching it for the first time, or was this the first time? I guess I, I always forget. I should ask that with you right out the gate. Oh God, I, I have seen bits and pieces of this movie like a thousand times, but I think this is the first time I've actually sat down and watched it from stop from start to stop. Mm-hmm. Well, what what so, were your uh, initial reactions after uh, you know finally sitting down and watching it like this? Uh, interesting. Um, you know, like obviously, like, like the effects aren't as quite as good as they would today. But God, like the the, the transformation scene to me was amazing. Yeah, and and I think I think that kind of speaks so much to maybe maybe there's there should be like a happy medium between practical and digital. As far as this movie, I, I don't know. It was it was a little off balance to me. Like I enjoyed it. You know, like I think people should watch it, but I don't know, like the, the, the lead character, I'm blanking on his name. Just kind of the way he was acting, I was ready for him to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, David, it was necessarily pulling for. Yeah, it was David. So David's kind of an asshole. Let's just go ahead and let him, uh, go ahead and let him bite it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, going through the movie, it's just like, uh, all right, well, him and his buddy, all right, his buddy just died. Oh, that's sad. All right. Well, uh, oh, he, he's hooking up with this girl. Oh, oh! You're gonna force her to to pay for everything. Okay. Next scene, he's throwing like uh, uh, pounds around everywhere. Yeah. What? <laughs> he's what you would call in modern day a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I'm sure that that kind of off balance kind of thing probably just comes from the fact that John Landis was the writer and the director of this up to this point. When when he made this movie. He had pretty much done nothing but uh, comedy. I mean, one, his very first movie was this movie called Schlock. And I, I actually went down the rabbit hole uh, this past week and watched this movie because I'd, I had, I don't even know if I'd ever heard of it, but I'd definitely never seen it. And I just happened to notice that, you know, I, I, it was uh, an option to watch online. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to sit down and watch this thing. Man, what a corny ass, you know, uh, clearly it's it's his, you know, it's someone's first movie. You, you know, you can say that. You can you can definitely see it when you're watching it. But uh, the comedy, like, and you can see his comedy too. Like, you know, like right after that, he made the Kentucky Fried movie, and then of course his huge break or his huge bust out was National Lampoon's Animal House in '78. Then the Blues Brothers, of course, and then Amer- an American Werewolf in London. So the dude got on a roll, you know, for a few years there. But those 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 were the four movies that he had done leading up to an American Werewolf in London. So they're all pure comedy, but you know they kind of got that 
kind of witty, dry humor kind of about them, you know, all those movies. I mean, so, some of it is, you know, right in your, in your face, right? Some of it's gross humor and whatnot. Sophomoric, I guess, is uh, the way you would classify some of that humor. Obviously, in Animal House. But, yeah, like, I, that's getting back to the point. That's probably where a lot of the weird, imbalanced stuff comes from with this movie is that, like, he was a comedy guy, you know, that decided to do this. And I, I saw something. Apparently, he had wrote the script or at least some basic uh, um, outline of the script for this movie in, like, 1969 and then shelved it for over a decade before he finally, like, pulled it back out and... I guess now that he had finally had some success with those, you know, a few of those other movies, uh, he was able to get financing and away we go. But yeah, uh, th th this probably where it feels a little disjointed when you're watching it, like you said. Smoke, what did you think of it? Like, you know, what were your impressions of it? You mean uh, this time around or just initially? Uh, both in general. I mean, since you just kind of talked about that was the first time you remember watching it. What, what did you think about it back then versus like how you think of it now? Uh, yeah, well, back then, like I said, that first time I saw it when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, I, I didn't maybe didn't appreciate it as much as I would later on as far as it being a, like a good werewolf film overall. And the, the comedy does, like I mentioned too as a kid, it's kind of, you know, it's like what it takes you kind of by surprise the first time you see it. And uh, But later on, after you see more, if I saw more werewolf movies of the 80s and whatnot, and some bad ones, because <laughs> there's plenty of bad ones too. Uh, I did appreciate it more over the years as I saw it. and then, So now it's just, uh, I mean, I've seen it so many times now that I just, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily grow on me anymore. I mean, I like I like it for what it is. And as Will would say, and the, the transformation scenes are awesome. Uh, as you're watching it back then in the 80s, pretty much most all of the makeup scenes are pretty awesome, the splatter, latex effects and everything. Uh, now, as far as the, <laughs> we can talk about this now, I guess maybe as far as the final werewolf transformation, there's been talk of that amongst people in the horror community as far as it being maybe not the, not up to snuff with the rest of the transformation effect, which, I mean, I could agree with that. Yeah. You know, kind of clunky when it's the, when he's a full wolf because they went for the full, for, you know, paws on the ground rather than the anthropomorphic standing on his hind leg type werewolf. Yeah. You know, it did, it did look a little eh when they showed the final wolf, but I thought the transformation scenes and the gore effects were done well. I think that it still looked good, but just not as good as the transformation stuff. Yeah, the mobility of it wasn't so very so great. I mean, when they would show them, I think when they would show them in full wolf form moving, like through the streets and whatnot, it was kind of clunky. Uh, but but it still the look of the the face of it looked pretty cool. Still, it's just the movement of it, I guess, overall. Was, uh... And especially now, what you know about movie making and and special effects and all that stuff throughout the last forty years and You've seen a, a ton of movies. You could probably tell, like, there was a lot of puppet work going on with it in those close-ups. And uh, I'm sure, like, there's just some dude literally in a suit on all fours running around in certain aspects of that, I guess. You know, I didn't look deep into how exactly they pulled it off. But, yeah, you can – it definitely doesn't hit quite as well as the uh, that transformation scene. But, man, yeah. that, though, good Lord. I mean, yeah. Except that, I will say, though, that the scene that it kind of does work in is the scene that they don't show it as much in is the subway. Whenever mm -hmm. it's stalking the guy in the subway, and the, and the faraway shot, you see the, the wolf come into the frame. I, think that, I thought that was pretty effective because they, did, they showed it from a long shot, and he wasn't doing a whole lot of movement. Yeah. And that whole scene was pretty tense, I thought, especially as a kid, and then even still watching it fairly. 
there's good tension built in that team. I mean, obviously, I think it was well-deserved. And maybe this is a point where we can talk about Rick Baker, I mean, because he was the guy that uh, did all these special effects that we're talking about in this movie. And then uh, that was another thing, too, that uh, that drew me to want to watch that movie, Schlock, was that that was the first time that those guys had worked together was on that movie. Now, <laughs> trust me, uh, the special effects do not uh, are not as well done in Schlock as they would be... <laughs> Uh, eight years later, you know, when they made this movie. But uh, still, you know, you can tell that, like, even in that movie, kind of you could see the beginnings of guys that kind of knew what they were doing, even in that movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is a little, this is rough because it's their first movie and, you know, it's it's corny. But you can see the beginnings of some guys like, you know what? Like, give them a little bit of time, you know, and and eventually they'll, you know, turn into, you know, bigger things. And, and obviously they did. But, uh yeah, uh, w- do you have anything on uh, Rick Baker, like anything to point out there, Smoke? That's probably more your purvey. This is the movie that he won the Oscar for. And I guess, like we're kind of talking about outside the show, it was, his fir- it was the first special effects category, right? For the uh, yeah, it was, well, it was the first uh, Academy Award for Best Makeup. For Best Makeup. Yeah. yeah. Th- there had been a couple of people before that, apparently back in the 60s, that had got like some honorary Oscars for like makeup type stuff, you know, but this was the first time that I guess they actually had a category for it. And, um, he won it that year and he beat, uh, oh, I got, I had it right here. He beat Stan Winston for a movie called Heartbeeps. As I don't even remember right now what that Stan Winston Heartbeats movie even was. Uh, it looks like it was a, a romantic sci-fi comedy. So God, God knows you have to go back and, and check that out, <laughs> but it had uh, Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Peters in it as the robots. And apparently, there were some robots in that movie. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and check that out. But yeah, apparently he Rick Baker beat out Stan Winston for that movie for this Oscar. But yeah, <laughs> this is rare air for us to be talking about a movie that actually won a fucking Oscar, right? So <laughs> <laughs> usually we're talking about movies like Never Too Young to Die or something like that. That would be the complete opposite side of the spectrum of anything that would come close to winning an Oscar. But as far as like Rick Baker himself, you know, and in some of, in some of his work, I mean, he's he's pretty up there with uh, with, with Savini, I'd say, as far as in... Now, he, his Savini's probably more well-known for the out-and-out splatter effects and gore more so, and uh, Rick Baker's known... I mean, he does the gore effects too, but he's more known for his creature effects, I think, more so than the, the splatter department. Mm-hmm. But he's not like a... You know Larry Cohen's It's Alive movies? Yeah. That was one of the early things after Schlock that I think it is. I think Schlock was in the early 70s, 73 maybe. Yeah, that yeah, that was 1973, uh, yep. Okay, and then uh, I know that uh, It's Alive was 1974, so it was one year later. And then, then he picked up and did Squirm. You ever seen the movie Squirm about the worms? No, like, I've heard of that, but I don't think I've ever actually sit down and watched it. Yeah, that, that's one we could do at some point on the show. It's pretty fun. I mean, it's low-budget 70s movie. And uh, it's got some good effects, and, and it's—I don't know if you necessarily call it underrated, but it is more than what you—it's better than what you would think. Think, you know, with that premise of a mm-hmm. killer worm, is better than what you would think it would be. And uh, then he did King Kong, which uh, the one with uh, the 1976 remake—he did effects in that one too. Oh, hell, oh, now one of the things he's probably most well known for, but maybe people don't necessarily think of it anymore, is the uh, Star Wars—the first Star Wars movie in 1977. He did the cantina creatures, like Hammerhead and pretty much all the creatures in the cantina. 
It, it always kind of feels, and there's another connection there too with Frank Oz, who's in this movie, right? Because he's the guy that, you know, is like the Jim Henson connection with, and uh, he was also the uh, the voice of Yoda. Yep. Um, and, and a tons of other things, you know, like a lot of voices for uh, the Muppets and stuff like that. But like, it really seems like there's there's this group of guys that kind of work together in that time period, right? Like Rick Baker and uh, John Landis and then George Lucas. Maybe it's because they kind of come from the same era and, you know, they're all kind of doing things at the same time, but, you know, and Jim Henson and everything. But it seems like there's a lot of connections between these guys. Like even in Blues Brothers, like Frank Oz is in that. And, you know, clearly they're friends or, you know, they they cohabitat the same space in the same time period, right? Yep. And that's, and it's, it happens that way with effects guys a lot. I mean, when you, I guess when you get somebody you work good with and they do good work for you, you kind of tend to want to work with them again. And that would be another instance of that would be Tom Savini, as mentioned earlier, with George Romero. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have you together? You know, I guess once you find somebody who you get along with, I guess, well, and uh, they do good work for you, you want to keep, keep that uh, camaraderie going, I guess, movie to movie. Yeah. And that's not the only connection there. I know Romero had a lot of other people he would pull into to do movies with him as well. And uh, John Landis is no different. Joe Dante as well. Speaking yeah. of somebody else who just horror comedy well. <laughs> Maybe that's the connection is like the horror comedy aspect of it. You know, like some of these guys kind of all just kind of gravitated to the same kind of stuff. So they all just kind of work together. Or it seemed like they work together a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that that movie Schlock. I, I don't know if that's a movie that will ever hit here on the Spook Show. Maybe one day. I don't know. But uh, that was... Uh, that was that was interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting, like I said, just to point out that it was the first time that John Landis and Rick Baker worked together, and then eight years later, they make this movie. It's night and day, man. I just can't stress enough. Like <laughs> it's crazy, you know. But um, that's the cool thing. With, well, the good thing, I guess, for Schlock is, judge, you know, you take a title like Schlock, you don't expect much from it. True. <laughs> so, oh yeah. And, that- and think and think like uh, it, when when you're going into it, think like you do for Airplane the airplane movies or something like that, like get ready for, you know, the, the, the corny, the corny comedy. You know what I mean? Like it, it very, it's very much in that vein to me. Um, very true. but John Landis, I mean, he, he, he went on to, uh, to work and a lot of things, like I said, we know we were kind of focusing on the early part of his career there, but, uh, of course, you know, very infamously, he also did Twilight Zone, the movie, uh, in 1983. And that's a whole thing there, right. With that, that whole, a uh, horrible yeah. helicopter accident that happened where those kids and that guy and the actor, I can't think of his name, died. But, uh, there was a thing on, uh, I don't know if it's still on there. Was it Shudder? They used to have those little oh, half-hour shows. Yeah, uh, Cursed, Cursed Films. Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting, I don't know if it's still up there. I can't swear by it. It is. It probably it is. is. It is. That's good. That's worth watching. That. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a sad story, is it? And just oh, that whole 30-minute thing, that, you know, you feel... That's pretty emotional. Yeah. I mean, frankly, he's lucky that didn't ruin him forever. You know, I mean, fortunately for him, you know, he was able to keep on working after that. But, uh, yeah, that was because that was I only mentioned it because that was only about two years after an American werewolf in London when that happened, Mm -hmm. when that came out. So uh, but, you know, he he he, he's one of those kind of guys like, you know, because he did Masters of Horror. Right. Like when, when was that back in the late? Now, that was uh, mid-2000s when they did that Masters of Horror series. He did a couple episodes of that. Like, I wouldn't necessarily always think of him as, like, a Master of Horror, but, you know, 
he has done, you know, he did American Werewolf in London, this one, and, you know, uh, Twilight Zone, the movie, and a handful of other things. I'm not saying he didn't. It's just I've never really kind of looked at him that way, right? But he's one of those yeah, guys like, all over the place. Joe Dante, I do look at Joe Dante that way because he has done quite a bit more horror comedies than he has comedy, maybe. But, yeah, John Landis, you pretty much just think of American Werewolf in London. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I'll just run down his filmography as far as just uh, uh, a director. Uh, and, and you just think, and you just tell me if you think of him as as a master of horror, just, you know, off the top of your, you know, just hearing these movies. Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, Blues Brothers, uh, Trading Places, <laughs> George Burns Comedy Week, <laughs> Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Coming to America, like you know, like <laughs> even that uh, that damn uh, Sylvester Stallone comedy Oscar from back in '91. Like, like you hear those and you're just like master of horror, you know. But like, but I, I guess it's mostly because of what he did on this, right? Yeah, because really, if you break down Twilight Zone, you know, it can be debatable whether it's Twilight Zone horror, sci- is it sci-fi, it's both, is it this, you know? So, but you could lump that in there with it. But yeah, mainly I think it is uh, American Werewolf in yeah, why he's known. I mean, that's not the shit on any of his work. I mean, I love, I love a lot of what this dude has done throughout his career. I mean, like his uh, his filmography reads like a, a a list of my childhood throughout the eighties and nineties. You know, like I loved a lot of those movies. But it's just you know you wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily connect him to that. But this movie is probably what did it. Um, and he's gone on to do a lot of other things. So obviously, he is well known and. Back to Rick Baker for a second. I believe he's kind of like uh, retired now, right? Like, yeah, yeah, he's retired. Like, I think the last thing, and, and uh, from what I saw, I think one of the last things that he had done was uh, Hellboy. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of Rick Baker, too, we should mention this, I guess, is that uh, <laughs> he was scheduled to do the special effects for The Howling, which also came out in 1981, but he left The Howling to do American Werewolf in London, and left the special effects in the hands of Rob Bottin for The Howling. And I think he did I think Bottin did an excellent job for the movie, and I think he won a lot of accolades. I mean, not necessarily awards, but got a lot of accolades for his name, you know, for The Howling. So it worked I, out either way. Yeah, for both, I guess. But how history may have been different, right, if it had been the other way around? Or if yeah, honestly, uh, Baker had done that. Now that we do about those effects, I, I like, the transformation scene that Rick Baker did is, I think, is the best transformation scene. But as far as the outcome of the actual final werewolves, I like the final werewolves and the howling. Look yeah. at them. Those anthropomorphic standing on hind legs, wolf heel type, you know, look of them or whatever. And not not to fear, we will be getting to the howling here in the Summer of the Wolf. Uh, it's just going to take a few more weeks. We're going to do that on episode 69. So that'll be August 16th. So... About a month away, we'll be getting we'll be getting to the howling. So, the theme there obviously is you know obviously the werewolf movie theme you know some of the wolf but like just nineteen eighty one in general, you know these these big movies that were coming out and the, and the one that uh, obviously the howling was one of them and the one we're talking about today an American Werewolf in London it's just it's just funny that some of the the highest uh, uh, rated or you know the most um, put on a pedestal kind of horror uh, werewolf movies all came out and one all of them but you know at least two or three of them came out in the same year like you know it's, yeah. it's, it's just weird that like all of a sudden just like 1981 was the year that they decided to do this you know i'm, I'm sure it was p- pure happenstance i'm sure these guys weren't in comp- 
weren't competing, you know, <laughs> shaking their fists at each other. Oh, yeah, well, you do that, I'll do this, you know, but it just kind of happened that way. But it's crazy that 1981 was the year. Yeah, see, it's weird that things will go in cycles like that. Like, uh, I don't know, you, you know, The Abyss. And there was a whole bunch of underwater movies that came out around that same time, too. Yeah. Leviathan, Deep Star Six. Mm-hmm. Um, little cycle. So I guess we'll go a little bit, you know, since we've already dove a little bit into this, we'll, we'll uh, go back a step and kind of dive in uh, uh, to the other side of it. This movie was American Werewolf in London, was released August 21st, 1981, by Polygram Pictures, the Goober Peters Company, and it was distributed by Universal Pictures here in the United States, but internationally, it was distributed by Producers Sales Organization. <laughs> Does that sound like a front for something? I've never heard it. <laughs> Producer, Producers Sales Organization. Of course, this movie is rated R, you know, for obvious reasons if you've watched it. Uh, total runtime is one hour and 37 minutes. There's probably a couple little parts in there that drag a little bit, you know, that could have been left out. But for the most part, I think, you know, it's got a pretty good pacing about it. Uh, on IMDb, it's listed as a comedy slash horror, which, you know, it's another one of these movies that we talk about. Finds a, I, I would say this leans more horror than it does comedy, though, right? I mean, there, it strikes a good balance, and there's plenty of comedy there. But wouldn't you say it's more horror than comedy? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I think it just basically is pretty much horror and then uses a little bit of black comedy humor or whatever, dark humor to to spice things up here and there. I guess it's the whole thing with his friend Jack, right, that <laughs> that keeps it coming kind of that, – that's kind of like your comedy levity kind of bits, you know, that keep coming. And you know back. what that reminds me of? The whole Jack scene reminds me of Pascal from Pet Cemetery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I, type of character. Because he was also used to comedic effects to, to somewhat, you know, when he came back as a vision or whatever. Now, uh, when did uh, Pet Cemetery come out? Like, I'm not talking about the movie, but the book. When did? I'm not sure about that either. That. Hold on. I, I'll, I'll, while we're talking, I'll, I'll look really fast. Uh, okay, that that book came out in 1983. Oh, okay, so it was later. <laughs> yeah, so th- this would actually would have come before that. So maybe Stephen King. You know, I, I mean, for, for all I know, there's some interview out there where he's like, "Yes, definitely, this is where I got it." But uh, without us, without us knowing that on the surface, like, hey, you never know. Like, he, he might have got that general concept from from watching this movie. Who knows? One place, if if that's the case, I mean, if he admits, if if that was the case, and he admitted to that being an influence. I'm, I'm sure it would be probably in Dance Macabre, which was that novel he wrote where he talked all about his influences and everything. Yeah. So. And there, I've read that, but way back in like high school. Yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah, maybe that's something. If it is, yeah, maybe that's something we can look up, or uh, if anybody out there knows that, just uh, shoot us an email or a or a message about that if they know if there was any kind of influence there, because it, it would be kind of hard to believe if there wasn't some slight influence there, right? Like, what are the odds? Because it is very reminiscent. You're right. Um, over on IMDb, it has a rating of seven and a half out of ten stars, which you know. Basically, you know, out of how many they had there, that's uh, 75%, you know, thumbs up, basically. Over on Rotten Tomatoes, on the tomato meter, it has an 88%, which is certified fresh, and an 85% on the audience score. So, high marks across the board for this movie uh, by critics and audiences alike. And that's kind of the, the, the read that I got from the general information, you know, about the reception of the film, too, was that uh, it was, you know, kind of... Audiences and critics, when it came out, you know, they, they liked it. And it was commercially commercially successful as well. Uh, it had a budget of roughly $5.8 million. And box office in the U.S., or let's see, U.S. domestic, $62 million. 
Looks as, that looks like what it uh yeah. So uh, no no I'm sorry that that looks like it must be the the total. I don't know I'm kind of getting uh, uh mixed numbers here because like it looks like on uh, box office mojo you know that keeps up with these type of numbers it looks like it made about thirty and a half million so maybe that's maybe that's combining that and international. Maybe that's what it is, you know, roughly about the same amount internationally as it did domestically. That opening weekend, by the way, of August 21st through the 23rd of 1981, like we always say with these older movies, they don't keep, like, it seems like it's harder to find, like, specific box office numbers, um, you know, as far as, like, what was the top ten from that particular weekend. But they do have three movies listed here that were all in the first week that weekend. Number three was Prince of the City. Number two was Honky Tonk Freeway. I've never, I've never heard of that movie. And then number one, between at least these three movies, so I'm assuming that was number one in the box office, but at least of the ones they have listed here, An American Werewolf in London made $3.7 that weekend that it opened. Um, so, like I, like I said, you kind of get incomplete numbers a little bit when you, when you get something, you know, a little older like that, but... Uh, it did end up making about another hundred grand or so in a 2020 re-release, so I guess it must have come out at some point last year, uh, some small re-release somewhere. All right, so I guess we'll just go ahead and get into the you know the background as far as the cast and everything like that. We've already talked about John Landis; he he was the writer and director. This is completely his, and of course Rick Baker did all the special effects and whatnot for this. The cast it has David Naughton. As David Kessler, so he's he's the main guy that you know eventually gets bitten, turns into a werewolf. Uh, he is known for this and uh, let's see, Hot Dog the movie. <laughs> uh, uh, what just a couple a few years later, after that, like he's had a that that's the thing. Like you know, he's one of those guys that like you know I don't think he ever saw any. He was never in anything quite as big as this. You know, I guess he never really saw his star rise much from this, even after that. Um, although he's been in a ton of things. You know, like, he's got 93 credits on acting credits on IMDb, which date back to 1974. He was in an episode of the Planet of the Apes TV series. It, you know, pretty much American Werewolf in London was his first big, like, starring role, you know, his big break. But it didn't really take off after that. Like I said, in 84, Hot Dog the Movie, uh... A number of other things like TV and uh, uh, movies all through the 80s and 90s, uh, all the way up until, you know, most recently. I mean, he's still working today. Uh, his most recent thing looks like was a TV movie called Rediscovering Christmas. It sounds like one of those damn Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. That was his most recent thing, and that was in 2019. But he's uh, there's a couple other things that have wrapped up. And uh, either are filming or in post-production right now that he's that he's going to be in, including one coming soon called Waking Nightmare. And then apparently they're currently filming another movie called Attack of the Killer Chickens, the movie. <laughs> and he's going to be that in that. So a lot of that kind of stuff. He was in one of the Sharknado movies, Sharknado 5, Global Swarming, stuff like that. But yeah, this was ultimately probably the, the one thing that you would recognize his face from. His friend, Jack, is played by Griffin Dunn. You know, he's the... He's the guy that gets, you know, offed pretty quick in the movie, but he continues to appear throughout the movie as a, uh, as whatever the hell he is. He's another guy that's still active today, um, and he's mostly known for this and a movie called After Hours in 1985. 
and he actually has he's directed a few things. He actually directed that mo- uh, one called Movie Forty Three, which was like a, uh, or at least one of the segments of it, which was like one of those kind of sketch comedy type movies where they just threw a bunch of like different actors and different skits. You know, it was it just kept coming. You know, kind of thing. Like it, there's no narrative. There's no, it's not like one solid movie. It's just a bunch of sketches. You know, it was one of those deals. He was actually one of the, he directed one of the segments in that. Um, he was also in that movie Dallas Buyers Club with uh, Matthew McConaughey back in 2013. Just stuff like that, you know. I mean, he's got 13 directing credits, 97 acting credits on IMDb that date back to 1975. He was in a movie called The Other Side of the Mountain. And he was only in a couple other things before an American Werewolf in London. Uh, he was in a movie in 1984 called Johnny Dangerously. I don't know if you guys remember that one or not. Yeah, I do remember that one. Um, yeah, just a number of things throughout the 80s and 90s, and like I said, all the way up until today. And his uh, most recent stuff, let's see, he was in uh, a couple episodes of the TV series The L Word, Generation Q. Apparently he's been in a handful of episodes of that show on NBC called This Is Us. I guess that's kind of more of his more current deal right there. So still active, you know, still see him today. Before we go on, uh-huh. the two guys that played, uh, uh, what was it, David and... And was Jack? Yeah, yeah, those are the two main guys, David and Jack. Yeah, David's the guy that turns uh, into the werewolf. Uh, something that I found was uh, the executives actually wanted, this would have been odd, uh, Belushi and Ackroyd. <laughs> I could have seen it, especially with the connections from everything that he had done up to, up to this, right? Like, yeah. you just came out of uh, doing Animal House and doing uh, Blues Brothers. So it naturally it would have made sense, you know, and and probably I'm assuming what I mean. Did they state any reason why he didn't do that? Give me a second. I'll have to find that note again. Well, I mean, I would imagine probably the reason would be like, look, I just want to kind of make this thing over here and make it mine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't necessarily want to attach a big star to it, kind of thing. I just want to tell well, my, tell my story. In the know? description, it said that he was trying to find new faces. Yeah. And then on top of that, I think they were filming something else. And like I said, you know, when we were going down their careers there, they were new faces at the time. They, Both of them had only done two or three things leading up to this. You know, so they were definitely fresh faces, you know, in, at this time period, no doubt. And like I said, they've gone on to have great careers, just not on the level of that, right? So, <laughs> And I'm sure this movie would have been... Maybe it's that, too, that, like, you know, you put Aykroyd and Belushi at it in this, in that time period where they're like the top comedy act in the world at that point, like it probably would have been seen more as a comedy than he wanted it to be, you know? Well, yeah, and I, then I think the way that this this thing was uh, uh, marketed, everybody was going in expecting a comedy. And yeah. like from some of the stuff that I read, I mean, uh, once especially like the uh, uh, Nazi werewolves pop, popped up, like there was a <laughs> ton of people hopping up and leaving. Well, even look at the... <laughs> Even look at the uh, the damn title on the poster. Go look at the original poster of the movie. It says, An American Werewolf in London, right under it. It says, The Monster Movie. You know, so like, <laughs> it seems like they were they had to, probably had to lean in a little bit. Like, all right, look, this is a horror. This isn't a comedy. There might be some comedy aspects to it, but it's a horror movie. You know, so they probably had a hard sell job coming from the guy that just did the Kentucky Fried Movie, <laughs> Animal House, and Blues Brothers. <laughs> So, anyways, the cast, uh, Nurse Alex Price is played by Jenny Agutter. I guess that's how you say it, A-G-U-T-T-E-R, Agutter. 
once again, you know, still active today. She has 117 acting credits on IMDb, and that goes all the way back to 1964. She was in a movie called East of Sudan, and uh, so she was clearly like not a not a new face at this time. Like she had been in a ton of uh, television series and uh, movies even well before this, like all through the late 60s and uh, all through the 70s leading up to this. So she was, you know, one of the leads here that, you know, definitely had some uh, some credits behind her, you know, going into this. Uh, yeah, I her most from Logan's Run. She was like the main character in Logan, that sci-fi movie, Logan's Run. But I didn't realize until I looked on IMDb of how many damn credits she does have. <laughs> yeah, it's like I said, 117. It's crazy. And, you know, how IMDb always lists them as a known for and they'll, like, have their top four, so to speak. Although sometimes I think we have a bone of contention with what they pick for the top four. But this one is oh, yeah. this movie, Logan's Run. She had it must have been, like, a really small role in The Avengers, the first one from 2012. And she she played Joanne Simpson in Child's Play 2. Yeah, yeah, I do remember from that. That's, if I had to, if you had shut me down before and said, what movies is this, you know, She'd been in before. That's the only two I probably could have came up with besides this one, Cosplay 2 and Logan's Run. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like like, like I said, a handful of things even before this movie. But, you know, she, she continued to do a ton of stuff even afterwards. A lot of TV, random TV series, like an episode of Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, um, The Twilight Zone, uh, you know, the series from the 80s, not the, the original run of Twilight Zone, but, the you know, when it came back in the 80s, she was in a couple episodes of that. She was also in Dark Man in 1990, and that was in an uncredited role as Burn Doctor. <laughs> and then right after that, or I should say the same year as that, Child's Play 2. So there's uh, definitely a, a horror connection there between this and, and those and a handful of other things that uh, you would probably recognize her from, for sure. By the way, uh Going back to the Belushi and Aykroyd thing, they were uh, busy working on Neighbors. Ah. And uh, they actually wanted Landis to direct that. But, <laughs> but he was probably knee-deep in trying to do this. and Right. Now, when did Belushi pass away? That was around this time, right? Like, wasn't that? I can't remember what year that was myself. That, probably 80, 81, 82, somewhere around there, right? 82. Yeah. So, yeah, what? Beyond there. Uh, you, here's a something. What, what, what if uh, John Landis said, screw this American World movie, I'm going to go over here and do Neighbors. Then, uh, you know, Rick Baker would like, oh, well, fuck that, I'm going back to the howling. <laughs> yeah. How would things and have changed some then? Asshole, it like, turned out to be the worst werewolf movie ever. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, we got what we got here, knowing you know, knowing how this came together and, and hearing these things, you know. And like I mentioned, Frank Oz is in it. It's a very small role. You know, he's just like the uh, American embassy guy that comes in with David's in the hospital. Uh, Miss yeah, <laughs> Mr. Collins it's slash slash Miss Piggy because there is that brief appearance by uh, <laughs> what Kermit and uh, Miss Piggy when they're like watching it on TV, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you notice in the end credits where they actually credited them as themselves? It says yeah, Kermit the Frog is Miss Piggy is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did notice. That's funny. <laughs> I also noticed too at the uh, which I guess this is another sign of the times kind of thing, right? Uh, at the very end of the credits. Uh, it says, Lycanthrope Films Limited wishes to extend its heartfelt congratulations to Lady Diana Spencer and His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales on the occasion of their marriage, July 29th, 1981. So, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, that, was, that was added in because, uh, uh, I guess, at the time of them like actually like, really starting to buckle down and put this together, uh, there was questions of his sexuality. 
And ah. then, you know, within a couple months of uh, uh, them wrapping up and about to put this out, uh, they were about to get married. Well, they even said it in the movie, right? Remember that scene when uh, David's trying to get arrested? And he's yeah, talking that's, shit. That, that's why they put it in there. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think yeah. he says, I think he says, uh, Prince Charles is gay or homo, so, yeah. something like that, right? So, like, whatever he says, but not that we condone that language here on the Spook Show. <laughs> but <laughs> the he, language you just used. Yeah, <laughs> but it's there, so you know, go back and watch it. But uh, yeah, so I guess, may, you know, I kind of thought about that when I saw that at the end. I'm like, you know what? I wonder if they almost like kind of felt like they had to put that there because of that, because of the lines they put there, like. What did he say, like the Queen's yeah. a bitch or something like that? Like, you know, they're kind of throwing off on the Royals, so uh, maybe yeah. they had to kind of, you know, <laughs> soften the blow a little yeah. bit. There. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially, too, that's another thing when you're talking about the background of this. Like, uh, one thing that I read that apparently this was, like, the first time in, like, 15 years at that time that cameras had been allowed to film anything there in Piccadilly Circus. You know, the, basically the whole end scene. And apparently one of the, uh, or the way that he was, John Landis was able to get this done was that, you know, he had been successful with, you know, his last few movies, right? And uh, uh, Blues Brothers. Apparently he, he went and uh, showed the movie to the, let's see, it says uh, 300 members of London's Metropolitan Police Service. He invited them all to a screening of the then newly released film, The Blues Brothers, and then they were so impressed by the, that movie, they let him uh, film the movie in Piccadilly Circus for two nights. They gave him a filming permit for it between 1 and one a.m. and 4 a.m., and then they had to stop traffic and everything. But traffic was only stopped three times for two-minute in- increments to film the automobile stunts. So, like, just think about that, what you saw there in that scene with those cars crashing into each other and everything like that three times for two minute increments to film that stuff, <laughs> including the double decker bus and everything. But yeah, at that time, this was like the first, and, and like Piccadilly circus is kind of like, would you say that's kind of like London's Times square, right? Kind of. Yeah. Probably that time as far as the, uh, that element. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With the theaters and the, you know, marquees and all that. Yeah. And, and that's, that's something worth a chat there. Like, what the hell? Like, with, <laughs> with all the porn theaters and stuff? Like, can you imagine? Like, I, I guess that's just what it was, like, back in the late 70s and 80s, right? Like, and, well, hell, it might still be like that over in England. I know they're a little more loosey-goosey there than we are here in the United States with that kind of stuff. But, like, the uh, the porn theaters and stuff, like, it just seems like it would be very easy for anybody just to walk in there and just sit in a theater and watch porn. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... Yeah. It's just odd now, right? Like, it's clearly a, a sign of the times. You know, like, obviously, you know, we, we talked about, you know, he had written, like, an outline of this, like, you know, like, Nin- what, 10, 12 years before it was actually put to film. Yeah, 1969. But uh, uh, the people in the theaters were supposed to be watching cartoons uh, because that's what they used to show back then. So, you know, uh, years go by. Finally, when they do it, he just moves it to uh, a porn theater because that's what they have there that, then now. Yeah. <laughs> well see that kind of mirrors Times Square too well except in Times Square it was uh, back in I don't know how far you go back in the 20s or 30s they were like very well to do opera houses and playhouses and all that and then when that started to go down I don't know if it was Depression era whatever era it was where those started to go out of business so to speak they reopened them later as those as not just porn but they played horror movies and kung fu movies and all kind of stuff there but by that time when they reopened, they were all in tatters, like the seats 
everything yeah. inside was uh, just kind of moldy and mildewy, and leaks that would come in the roof. They wouldn't repair them. So it was uh, definitely, uh, it, like they showed in the Piccadilly thing, it was Times Square is like that times probably 10 as far as on the, uh, on the, I don't know, it's called perversion yeah, but, factor. Yeah, but that that theater like actually seemed like a legit, legitimately nice little theater, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like the way they, like, oh, yeah. I think it's actually still there today. Yeah, but I mean, it looked like a nice little place. But like, could you imagine walking in there to just sit there and watch a porn movie? Like, like I said, sign of the times, man. Like, you know, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to. We do could it. we could do a whole show on the Times Square. I, I don't know that much about Piccadilly, but I mean, but Times Square, we could do a whole show on the era of Times Square when it was uh like that. But it wasn't just a porn. Like I said, you could go in and watch Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, whatever Texas Chainsaw. Some theaters would run horror like all day long, and other ones would be like the kung fu theater, and then you'd have a, the porn theaters, and you know, some would just mix up everything. You had cowboy movies playing at some. It was just, yeah, we could do a whole show on that. Yeah. The filming of this took place between February and March of 1981, um, because, apparently because Landis wanted to film it taking place during poor weather. So they waited till like, you know, they, I guess they knew it would be cold and wet and everything to, to actually film this. And uh, it was pretty much all filmed, you know, the Moors scenes, those were filmed in the Black Mountains in Wales. And that, that was a uh, tiny village of Crickadarn, which is about six miles southeast of Bulleth Wells. Apparently the Angel of Death statue was a prop that they added for the movie, but the red phone box is real. What and, about the slaughtered lamb? That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that a- well, that, that, <laughs> that, uh, that was actually, like, I don't even think it was a, a pub. I think that was just like yeah. a cottage that they, you know, doctored up to call it the slaughtered lamb. And that was there in Crickadarn. And uh, the interior, I guess on the outside, the interior scenes were that were filmed in the Black Swan, uh, Old Lane, Martyrs Green, and Surrey. So this was all filmed, you know, in, in Wales and that, that general area, you know, except for, like I said, those scenes in Piccadilly, you know, and some of that stuff in London. But, yeah, this was all filmed there. And then, of course, in uh, Twickenham Film Studios in Richmond, Upper Thames. So all in you know, that general area there, which is funny for uh, you know pretty much a, a, an American uh, production, you know, right to be completely done there. But you know th- this was one of those rare things too, I think, you know, where you don't always see it. Where like you know they kind of married the two together. You know what I mean? Like the stars of the movie are American, but it's all English. You know, basically everything else is. So you, you know you, you don't often see it quite like that, especially back then. So I think this was kind of unique during the time period for that much. Um, yeah, I think when this movie came out, like they only needed uh, four work visas for this movie. Yeah, because everyone else was there. Right. What'd y'all think about the soundtrack too? Like uh, the Blue Moon and like all oh, the yeah. all the Moon references and stuff. It's not subtle at all, but it's awesome. <laughs> no, it's not. It's definitely not. And I think I think there's like two or three different versions of Blue Moon in this movie too, right? There's three. Yeah, yeah. Because like. Because I know the one, the you know the 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 one that I think I always associate with Blue Moon, you know, was that that doo-wop version at the end, you know, that you hear during mm. the credits. That's kind of the one I always think of when I hear Blue Moon. But there was, like I guess, like you said, there was two other versions of Blue Moon played throughout uh, the movie. The, the, there was one uh, right at the very beginning, and then the other one was during the transformation scene. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, they got the Creedence Clearwater Revival, Bad Moon Rising. You know, <laughs> like you said, not subtle at all, but. Uh, still, still well done, you know for sure. Yeah. It helps the movie along, and that that that's where that's another where one of those spots where it kind of reminds me of Blues Brothers or uh, 
uh, especially Animal House. I don't know if this is, I don't know if it was used this way before this movie, but definitely after the Bad Moon Rising is on like about anybody's Halloween playlist, you know. And it might just be because of this movie, <laughs> putting it in there first. I don't know if anybody connected it with werewolves before that. No. Yeah. Although it does kind of lend itself to that, right? Like, you know, even before this movie, <laughs> you know, you would yeah. kind of connect it. But I, well, I guess I mean, that's really about all I had to kind of, uh, you know, get us up to where we're going to talk about in the movie. Was any, anything else you guys wanted to talk about? Uh, I'm sure I'll think of a couple of things as we're going through. Uh, this one's just super small, but uh, one of the streets they filmed on was uh, uh, Lupus Street. Uh, and in Latin, Lupus stands for wolf. <laughs> I'm sure that was completely coincidental. <laughs> just like the soundtrack yeah <laughs> oh well one other thing i guess we could mention before we get into it is that this movie does at least this one does play with the whole full moon aspect of the of being a werewolf you know some movies just kind of they just turn into a wolf whenever they want to right or whenever at night or at any point but this one definitely does play into the transformation into the wolf only during the full moon yeah when david get attacked originally in the moors because they make it a point it's the full moon tonight, boys, and you know, be careful out there and whatnot. And then, then during you know that whole lead up, which I guess you know, it was a whole month, I guess, from the time they got attacked to the time that he transforms again when he's living with uh, the nurse. And they, and they also kind of shit on the uh, silver bullet thing, right? Yeah, yeah, true. That's true. Because they, they, unless they didn't say, I mean, maybe maybe they just didn't say. But you would think, you know, the the people from the bar when they finally do get out there and do what they you know before we get into the story before they do what they do. No, there's no mention of there being a silver bullet involved or not in the gun, you know? Yeah, well, yeah no, they they never, like, directly say, like, that we took him down with a silver bullet or anything. They just shoot him, right? But uh, yeah, I think there is that thing where, like, uh, <laughs> that scene towards the end. Well, hold on, before I go into that, we are a spoiler-filled podcast. <laughs> 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 Anything we say from this point forward, we're going to be spoiling it. So, like, if for whatever reason you haven't watched it, you know, go Go, go check the that out. 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> We've probably already spoiled some shit at this point, but I, I should give you the old disclaimer. Um, like I said, I'm getting really bad about not getting that off front street. Like, <laughs> Somebody's going to listen to most of this and say, hey, man, I've never watched it. Uh, I'm sorry, but... You, why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah, you should not listen to this if uh, you haven't watched it yet. Go, go watch it and then come back. But... Uh, yeah, like towards the end where there's that scene where they're kind of going back and forth. Like, yeah, you should kill yourself, and you should do it this way and that way. And he says something about a silver, oh, yeah. he says something about a silver bullet, and they're just like, yeah, you know, like like that's bullshit, you know, kind of. Yeah, like they they pick and choose, and that, you know that's been the whole basis of just about every werewolf movie that's ever come out. None of them, well, I won't say none, but many of them don't go by the standard of I guess you could umbrella folk of werewolf folklore. They just pick and choose. Like this one picks okay the full moon. We're gonna go by that. But fuck the silver bullet thing yeah and other ones might but well, they can only be killed with silver or of some sort you know but we don't give a damn about whether it's full moon you know <laughs> so there's they play with a all these different werewolf movies play with the lore in their own way i guess more they're more loose than say your usual vampire movies that try to stick generally with the usual vampire folklore yeah yeah Hurry, hurry, step right this way, folks, for the most extravagant array of refreshment goodies ever assembled under one roof. Enjoy breathtaking, taste-tempting candies of finest quality. Enjoy popcorn exploded into tender, delicious, crispy bites of crunchy goodness. Enjoy the tops in cool, refreshing soft drinks. If you want to enjoy some refreshments, this is your opportunity. There will now be a short intermission. Intermission. 
For you, the listeners of the All-American Spook Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. So I just, you know, as we've done a couple times here in the Summer of the Wolf, I just went in and typed in werewolves to see what would pop up. Uh, there's a book called No Such Thing as Werewolves by Chris Fox. It's the first book of the Deathless series, and that's a little over 14 hours long. Um, this seems like a sexy, steamy book, Will, for you. Good. Ta- taken by Werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> the Lost Princess of Howling Sky series, book one by Kestra Pingree. Uh, that one is a little over seven hours long. Looks like a steamy take on the werewolf lore for, <laughs> for all, uh, for Will and all the other listeners out there. And, uh, one more, we got Shift, Southern Werewolf Series, book one by Heather McKinnon. That one is almost 12 hours long. So, like I said, you, you know, wh- like we've always talked about before with, uh, Audible, man, you can type in just about anything, which I think we proved a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and you'll, uh... You'll find some audiobook on Audible to do with, you know, whatever it is you're looking for. So to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash spookshow. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash spookshow for your free audiobook. All right, so I guess with that out of the way, we'll go ahead and get into the movie itself. Uh, the movie starts off with two Americans. They're backpacking. Uh, I guess their plan is to kind of like backpack through like these parts of England and go to Italy or something, right? I think was uh, their ultimate thing. So they're doing this over months. Uh, you know, I'm assuming it's one of those setups like, you know, maybe they're either in school or they just got out of school or something and they're kind of backpacking and traveling Europe uh, before they have to, you know, go back to the real world, so to speak, one last time. I guess it's, that's kind of the thing here. Uh, so you're uh, introduced to David and Jack, uh, and they're they're trekking across – the Moors in uh, in England there. It's nighttime, so they go ahead and stop at a pub called the Slaughtered Lamb. <laughs> and the, how how obvious could you get, right? There's something werewolfy going on here because, like, I think they said, I think he even says, like, "Where's the lamb?" Because like, it's just like a wolf on the sign hanging on the building. And like, then did he stop to say, did he say something like, "Maybe we're the lambs"? Or no, I forget what he said. Something. Yeah, he made yeah. Some joke about. So yeah, something like that. Uh, so they go in and sit down, and of course they, they get the old. Uh, you know, uh, at the outer towner, like everybody stops and stops talking and stares at him kind of bit. And there's a star on the record stopping. They didn't have yeah. the record stopping as they walk in, but pretty much everything else. Yeah, yeah pretty much the old bit. Uh, as they sit there, they notice there's a five pointed star on the wall. Uh, what do they call it? A pentangle? Is that what they? Yeah, call it a pentangle. I mean, I always thought it was just a pentagram. Yeah. Whether it's inverted or right side up, whatever. But yeah, he called it a, a pentacle. Pentacle, which uh-huh. I guess that's. That's another name for it. I mean, it's five points. Yeah, it was just weird. Yeah. It was just weird wording from what I, what I'm used to hearing. Like you said, it's a pentagram, and I was like, pentangle. What the hell are they? It's the Wolfman. Didn't they say pentagram in the Wolfman in the Lon Chaney movie? I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. But it, it, maybe that was just you know John Landis's weird spin on it, or the or they just yeah. who knows. But um, they call it like a, a, a pentangle. You know, it's it's on the wall, and there's some candles around it. So they ask about it. And then all everybody in the pub's like, you know, get the fuck out, you know, basically. So they leave. But when when they when they they left, they told them like, uh, all right, make sure you keep to the road and stay clear of the moors and beware of the full moon. So of course, they immediately get off the road and into the moors, and, <laughs> and it's a full moon. So then they they start hearing a wolf like yelling out, and you know they're kind of running around like we hear it, but they can't see it. And then eventually it attacks them, and. Uh, or at least, you know, you assume it's a wolf, right? Like, I don't think they come right out and say a wolf is killing us or something like that. But 
you're led to believe that, you know, yeah, they're being attacked by a werewolf. Dear God, it is a wolf-like creature, not so much a wolf, but not so much a man. <laughs> I'm sure the transformation of which into this animal looks far more impressive than the actual end of the animal itself, which is now attacking and killing us. <laughs> oh, God, just keep breathing, buddy. Keep going. <laughs> So in this scene, Jack is killed and David is bitten, but like the, the, the wolf is shot and killed by some of the guys that come out of the pub finally, like, you know, cause they're kind of debating to themselves whether they should have sent them out into the wild like this because they knew what was out there, but they did anyways. So when they came out, they shot the wolf dead. And then like right before David passes out, he looks over and sees like the corpse of a naked man lying next to him. And, you know, like, and Jack's laying on the other side and he's dead. Um, David wakes up three weeks later in a hospital in London and they come in and question him about this attack. And basically they say, hey, it was an escaped lunatic. But uh, David's like, no, no, we were attacked by like some kind of like big ass dog or wolf or something. They're like, no, 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 it was just an escaped lunatic. I just like how quickly they were to brush this off, right? Like clearly there's this whole sub story going on where like, the, I guess they kind of like pay people off to be quiet about it. I guess is kind of the, I mean like. Yeah, yeah that, that part is never really, other than the fact that they just didn't want to come off looking like a bunch of, you know, backwoods, Hillbilly. whatever. <laughs> Those are like really the other reason they, cause they say something like that about how come we didn't just tell him? Oh, could you imagine what he would think or what he would say? Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like they go a, a way out of their way to kind of explain this off instead of like, Hey, let's deal with this head on. You know, uh, this yeah. is clearly a thing that is, that has plagued this little village for hundreds of years. You would assume at this point. Right. So, um, yeah. now they, they just, you know, yeah. But nobody's ever heard of it. Yeah, and they, and then they Apparently, just also they, they've never attempted to shoot it before because all they had to do was just shoot it like a normal man or normal whatever, <laughs> wolf, and it would die. Yeah, <laughs> this is the first time they finally grabbed their guns and went out and shot the damn thing. Man, we could <laughs> we could have ended this three hundred years ago. <laughs> I kind of went into an Irish accent there. I apologize to the people of Ireland. And, and all they needed was a couple of Americans. Yeah. <laughs> but at that... American werewolf in London. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, so David has, like, nightmares and shit, like these weird wolf-themed nightmares, right? And then Jack appears to him and explains, like, yeah, that, that thing that attacked us, that was a werewolf, and now you're a werewolf. Uh, but now you need to kill yourself because, you know, the next full moon, you're going to become a werewolf, and... I'm in limbo, and the only way I can basically be released to go to heaven or hell or hell or whatever is by you dying. And like this, this ends the bloodline of the werewolf right here. Um, and of course, you you won't go on and kill other people. So just go ahead and kill yourself right now. That, by the way, Jack's makeup right there. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. Even yeah, his, like his, that would, that would still be good in today's standards. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No he doubt. had the flap of skin, the skin flapping when he was talking. Yeah, on his neck. <laughs> yeah. And I believe I read something saying like that prosthesis for his neck actually lasted for the entire filming, which I think you know probably lended lended to his character as it like kind of uh, decayed. decayed, like looking so much better. That's the other oh, thing. Yeah. That that's one thing too that I'd, I'd like to talk about just for a second. Like so. Jack is in limbo, but is he real? Like he's decaying, like he's real, right? Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's kind of like 
when but you think it, of something in limbo, you think of it being a, as appearing to somebody in like a ghost form or whatever. Yeah, or even or even maybe just, a soul's in limbo, okay. but maybe he's reflecting his his true body look. Or, or, or body. I, it's just something that they never really, you know, explain at all. It just kind of is what it is, and like you know. The whole decay thing is cool, but like it's he's not real because like clearly like somebody comes into the room and Jack's not there, right? So it just sounds like he's just talking to himself. So it's like it's in his head, right? But he keeps seeing Jack as like this decaying corpse. I don't know. It's just a weird. It's cool and all, like visually, it looks cool. Uh, and he does mention it as if it were like part of the normal werewolf folklore. You know, he mentions that this is this happens when you get killed by a werewolf. Yeah, and also that the fact that if you kill anybody as a werewolf, you're going to be haunted by all these people that you killed, you know, yeah. until this is over. I never read that. I mean, I, don't know, I guess they just made that part up for the movie, but didn't explain it so very well. <laughs> yeah, the doctor that treated uh, David in the hospital is, is uh, you know, trying to investigate what the hell is going on here. So he actually takes a trip um, to the slaughtered lamb out in that village. To, you know, to see if this is true or not or whatever. And then um, basically they're all like, nah, you know, nothing to it. Go fuck off, you know. And then one of the guys, like, he goes outside and one of the guys is like, yeah, like, uh, uh, basically kind of spills the beans about the werewolf thing, right, outside the pub. And then, um, and that David shouldn't have been taken out of here. Like, everybody's in danger because now this dude's, you know, a werewolf. So then David, like, gets released from the hospital and pretty much immediately just moves in with the nurse, Alex, uh, who, I guess, you know, kind of, you know, grew to like him or whatever while they were in the hospital. And uh, he stays in her apartment. And then, of course, that leads to, uh, we, it's not quite Wolf Cop. <laughs> it's not quite Wolf Cop where we get full-on, like, werewolf sex. But, you know, there, there's a whole sex scene there uh, between Dave and Alex. And then right afterwards, Jack appears to David again now he's like a more, you know, he's even more decayed, right? Telling, like, yeah, basically like a, you know, full full moon, buddy, you're gonna become a werewolf, you know, so you need to just go <laughs> ahead and go ahead and kill yourself. <laughs> but David doesn't believe it. He still like thinks he's going nuts, you know, right from the the trauma of the whole thing, so he doesn't believe it. And then basically, as soon as the full moon rises, uh, David transforms into a werewolf. Now this is the the big werewolf transformation scene that we've been talking about. Um, the only thing I found funny about it was like, he's, he's kind of going through the paces of being, cause like Alex leaves him there by himself to go to work. So he's there all day, like, you know, keeping himself busy, like watching TV, reading a book, you know, just fucking around there at the apartment or whatever. And then, and then all of a sudden, as soon as that full moon hits, but it's like, Oh, <laughs> he's just reading a book and then out my head, boom, you know, transforms into a werewolf. Um, yeah, it doesn't ease on, man. I, I would hate to become a werewolf. Yeah, it's just like all of a sudden, like, whoop, doing my dailies, reading the book, ah! you know. <laughs> and this oh, is one thing. If you happen to, if you have to get cornered by a werewolf or somebody who hasn't quite transformed into a werewolf yet, and they start transforming, you got a good chance to get the hell away from them. It takes a while. <laughs> yeah, to turn it. It's not. It's not quite like you turn around, like what'd you say, buddy, and then turn back around, and he's a werewolf. Like, yeah, you'd have plenty of time to get the fuck out, and just hope that he doesn't <laughs> sniff you down, right? <laughs> go get in the car and go. <laughs> but yeah, clearly a, a very impressive transformation scene. Like, and it, and it still holds up today. I dare say, like you know, you know, because there was kind of that. I guess it was kind of a sequel, but you know, I, I think it is a sequel. American Werewolf in Paris, 
that came out in what was that 97 98 something like that yeah um i i I don't know if it's like necessarily a direct sequel as far as like the characters that are in it but it is treated somewhat as a sequel like these things happened in that movie um it's been a while probably since that movie came out since i sat down and watched that movie but my point is i dare say that the the effects in that movie probably don't hold up as well as these do yeah i haven't haven't still haven't sat down and watched that one yet oh you've never seen it yeah i think i'm with you I'm with you. I think I saw it as soon as it came out. Yeah, like like I said, it's been a long time. Like it might have been that time, you know. Like I don't think I've seen it since. So it just tells you, like, even though it's a a movie that what came out twenty twenty five years after that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always probably going to look better, right? And also, this movie, this was kind of the first time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Smoke. You're more the 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 history uh, part of our you know panel here, but. It was this the first time you really saw like a full-on, really good transform werewolf transform transformation in a movie? I, I, for my money, yeah. As far as like when it, using modern bladder effects to make the skin pulsate and stuff like that, I would have to say yeah. I mean, there's been some before that showed. Usually, it was camera tricks of you know the camera cuts away, cuts come you know come back and the, and the nails have come out maybe a little bit or there's some hair that wasn't there before. But usually, it's a camera fade trick or something like along those lines. As to my knowledge. And somebody, anybody out there, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that this is the first time that they use those bladder effects for the transformations, and really, you know, the nails pushing out and the teeth coming out and everything. Now we have talked about that a little bit on, uh, you know, our Spook Show Spotlight History of the Werewolf episodes. You know, the two that have come out so far. Now the third part will come out next week, so that's probably where we're going to be diving more into this time period. You know, like before the leading up to this, and during this time period when these movies, you know, came out. So maybe we'll go a little bit deeper into that and we can find out more information by next week. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, like what, what we find there as far as historically where this goes. But, yeah, this is probably one of the first ones to do it right, right, where you're watching it like, holy shit, this is, this, is, this is messed up. I can imagine watching this in 1981, you know, <laughs> knowing that, like, what you'd seen in werewolf yeah. movies and stuff leading up to this, and then you see this, oh, yeah. like, good God, you know, this is horrible. See <laughs> it on the big screen, that transformation on the big screen in eighty one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that had to be pretty mind you know, mind blowing. Yeah. So now that he is turned into a werewolf, he's now he's like prowling the streets of London, right? And he kills six people in the process. And uh there's like a young couple, three ho- uh three hobos on the street, and then uh uh he, he kills a a dude in the subway and uh he wakes up the next morning naked uh, in the London Zoo, <laughs> and has no recollection of what happened. Uh, but he kind of runs through the streets naked, like steals some clothes, and gets back to, gets back to Alex's apartment. All right, all right. Since, since we were talking about the zoo part, let's, let's hang on that for a second. Mm. Apparently, the the only thing that were holding the uh, wolves back was the fact that they had just been fed. You, <laughs> you mean like in real life? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they some crazy mofos then. Also, yeah, he, was uh, there, he was in there naked as a jaybird too. And <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, yeah. if that was the case. Wow. Yeah. Uh, apparently, like uh, they said, like no loud noises, no quick movements, just ease out. Uh, and then apparently, like they had up until like nine a.m. to film. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, like, I guess during one of the scenes, he like walks over at the end of the scene. It's just like, man, you, you brought a lot of extras in. And like, no, dude, uh, it's it's past nine o'clock. Uh, those are real people. <laughs> <laughs> the zoo is now open. 
And you're naked. <laughs> <laughs> so like now, like he's back at Alex's apartment, and now it's like you know after that he he he's with her, and they leave, and like she's gonna like calmly take him to the doctor because the doctor had called and wanted them you know to come down to you know kind of get a hold of this situation because I think the doctor has come to the conclusion like yeah there might be something to this like this guy might legitimately might be turning into a werewolf. Uh, so then he realizes like he actually did become a werewolf, and then tries to uh, get himself arrested. Uh, and this is where, like we referenced before, where he was talking shit about the royals or whatever. And uh, he tells Alex that he loves her, and then, you know, he runs away. Uh, he goes to Piccadilly Circus, and then he calls his family from a phone booth to tell them that he loves them. Because I guess, you know, at this point, he realizes this isn't going to end well. Um, and then at that point, like, he hangs up, and then he tries to slit his own wrist, but he just can't do it. So uh, then... They, uh, he goes to pick, you know, like he's walking down the street in Piccadilly Circus and he sees David again. And then David tells him to come on inside this, uh, like porn theater that's, <laughs> that's there in, uh, Piccadilly. And they, he goes in there and he sits down, you know, while the porn's playing. And, uh, Jack introduces him to his, uh, his night's victim. So there's six other people now, you know, six other corpses sitting there with, with Jack. And they're all like telling like, yeah, like you, you need to kill yourself. And then they, they suggest all these different ways he should kill himself. Like throw yourself in front of the tube or, uh, you know, uh, uh, shoot yourself or whatever. And then I think this is the reference to the, the silver bullets, which they kind of laugh off, blah, blah, blah. So then he's sitting there in the theater and like basically kind of after this conversation, it cuts back to him and then it hits him again. Like he just, he's just sitting there watching the movie and all of a sudden, ah, <laughs> And then he, like, straight up turns into the werewolf again. Although, this transformation scene is still pretty cool, but it's not quite as impressive as the first one, right? But still, still really cool. Like, you see his fingers popping, like, you know, through his nails and everything like that. It's pretty crazy. But he turns into a werewolf right there inside the the, the old porn theater. And then uh, he just, I think he kills a couple people in there, right? And then the cops come, and then he busts out the the little pull-down door that they have in front of the theater. He gets through there, and... I think he just straight up like knocks a, a cop's head off, right? Like I think it's that that guy that he came to him earlier. He kind of runs up to him and then he just boom, like head flies off. Um, and then there's a bunch of car accidents and stuff like right there in the middle of uh, Piccadilly Circus. Uh, you see like a double decker bus, you know, getting nailed, you know, in these cars. There's a couple guys caught in between. It's, it's just chaos. And uh, he, he, you know, of course he's 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 werewolf David is killing people left and right too. And then he gets surrounded in an alleyway. Alex and the doctor show up. Basically, Alex approaches him and, you know, like, uh, tells David that she loves him. You know, basically, she she still wants to try to help him. And then David, it almost looks like David's going to come too for a second there. And then he just kind of lunges at her. And then that's when all the, sh- the cops uh, take him down. They, you know, load him full of bullets and kill him. And then, of course, he turns back into his human form. And then uh, Alex is crying, and they're just kind of standing there looking at it as it credits start. <laughs> and it's an it's an immediate, or it's kind of an abrupt end too, right? It's like <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Oh God, this is terrible. <laughs> Blue moon. <you> know? <laughs> yeah, I mean it was a climactic ending, but yeah, yeah it still yeah. comes out of like, oh, okay, I guess this is it. Boom. Yeah, it's abrupt. It's just like bam. Well, time to time to go throw the popcorn away and go take a leak and uh, leave the theater we're we're done you know <laughs> so there you go that's uh, an american werewolf in london so uh like we said donnie couldn't be with us this week so uh hopefully we'll get his uh thoughts on the movie uh either next week or the week after you know we'll, we'll get it somewhere along the line here but um 
I guess, Will, I'll throw it to you first. What's your star rating? What'd you think? I think I'm going to give this one uh, three and three quarters. It, it's it's a good movie. Like I said, it just, uh, some of it bugged me with the unevenness of, of I guess, the, the, the comedy, the, the horror. And then it was just kind of, to me, there were parts that were just kind of all over the place. So, I mean, overall, I think it's I think it's a movie that everybody should absolutely watch. But I guess for me, it, it doesn't make that uh, high four. All right, Professor, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I'm, actually, I mean, I totally agree with uh, what Will was saying as far as the... First of all, my rating is also going to reflect the same thing, three and three-quarter stars. Uh, I think it's a great movie. But, yeah, it does have a little issues with pacing. here. I mean, the beginning, I think it's awesome, that build-up when they, you get to the town and then the moors. Then we get to the hospital and into London and stuff and you get a little bit of a slowdown until he transforms and then it gets, picks back up again. But it's a great movie and like it, Will says, that's also, I think anybody should watch it if you're a fan of horror and you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Comedy, some of that, some aspects of the comedy works for me and some don't, doesn't. But overall, I still think it's a great werewolf movie. The transformation scenes are amazing and you can definitely see why, uh, why he won an Oscar for that. Well deserved. Again, like as we mentioned, the final, even if the final werewolf stage is kind of Leaves a little bit of desire, at least for me. I still think it's a great movie worth watching. Not my favorite werewolf movie, but, you know, even not my favorite werewolf movie from the 80s. But still, three and three-quarter stars is pretty high rating anyway, I think. So you both went three and three-quarter, right? Yep. I'm going to totally agree with everything you've just said. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the, the problems that it, have, that it has can be overlooked. You know, I think there's still a lot to be enjoyed and appreciated here. So, like you said, the pacing and stuff. And, like... Like I said earlier, like there, there's probably some parts you could have cut out of this that slowed it down a little bit, you know, and still served the story well. But you know, I, I think overall, I mean, w- w- you can't really crap on a classic like this, a forty, a forty-year-old movie that you know kind of defined a, a, a whole little subgenre of horror in a lot of ways. With the, you know, kind of rebooted the the werewolf movie, in, in a lot of ways at that time. Um, between this and The Howling and you know, and a couple others that came out that year, this was one of those formative movies. And like you said, if like y'all said, if you're a fan of horror movies and specifically werewolf movies, this if you haven't seen it, this is one you got to watch. So I think we're all on the same page here, three and three-quarter stars. And it'll be interesting to see what Donnie has to say about it, you know, to see if it brings down the curve a little bit or anything. But <laughs> all right, so Donnie isn't here to do his normal connections from the crypt section so we'll just kind of you know hold that until he's here you know if he has any connections there he can point those out but we'll go ahead and toss the will segment all right will what's the kill count for this one yeah you're gonna you're gonna see a theme in this so i come up with 20 you got a jack who got mauled by werewolf uh the townsperson got shot and then Harry and Judith walk in the park, got mauled. Uh, the three homeless people, Al, Ted, and Joseph, got mauled. Uh, Gerald, the guy in the subway, got mauled. People in the porn house got mauled. <laughs> uh, the police chief got mauled. <laughs> Specifically, his head ripped off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, be- that's beyond mauling there. <laughs> Multiple wrecks, guy run over, guy squished, so on and so forth. And then David was shot to death at the end. Yeah, that that probably sounds about right without me doing any kind of count while I was watching it, but yeah, and it and it gets a little harder to keep up with uh during the massacre at the end there in Piccadilly Circus, you know, like it's just 
it's a free for all. There might be, there might be one or two that you miss there, right? Absolutely. And then there's some of those that like I, we were discussing offline before. Some of those there, you're kind of like, well, did that guy really die or not? You know, like guy got smushed by a car, you know, or between two cars. You know, he's probably dead, but maybe not. The only one there for sure. Well, there's a couple there for sure. You know, like the dude gets his head knocked off, but. That guy that got <laughs> the guy that got ran over in the middle of that, like you know, like a tire just runs right over his damn head. Yeah, he's probably dead. Uh, but you know, there's a few other questionable ones in there. So yeah, it might be one or two less or more, right? But um, so that leads us into the uh, uh, smoke. What's your little segment? Gore score. So what you got? Ah, uh, well. As anybody who's been listening to the show knows, and if for those who may be tuning in for the first time, you'll learn is, is that the gore score is based on a legendary horror columnist, Chaz Balin's gore score. Uh, he came up with that in the 80s. And any time that a, if I can find a movie from his, one of his books that he's given a gore score to, I'm going to kind of revert to that, since this is an homage to Chaz. So he gave it a seven in the gore score department. And I, I tend to actually, as we were talking about this uh, before the show, you know, He's got a couple books out. One was called The Gore Score, and another book is called Deep Red Horror Handbook. And The Gore Score, which came out first, he gave it an eight. And I guess he revised it when he put out The Deep Red Horror Handbook and knocked it down to a seven, uh, which is what I would agree with. I would agree with the seven on it. It's got, you know, it's got some good mauling in there, like uh, the very beginning when he gets mauled on the moors, the, the aftermath of his body laying there is pretty gruesome. And then he comes back, of course, in his uh, limbo form in various stages of decay throughout the movie. And it's pretty graphic and gruesome looking and very convincing. And uh, then you have the various other werewolf maulings and the decapitation at the end. So it's not like, not trying to be the goriest uh, werewolf movie ever made, but it is there. So uh, I would agree with Chaz Valen's seven, the gore score. Yeah, yeah, I think that's more than fair for what you see in this movie. So, all right, so I guess we've said all there needs to be said about American Werewolf London for now, you know, unless we revisit it in one form or another one of these days. So it's, it's definitely highly recommended by all of us. And, you know, I'm sure we'll have a little small discussion with Donnie in one form or another about it to see what his thoughts were on it. So our next episode next Monday at 6 o'clock East, 6 p.m. East, is episode 66, History of Werewolves Part 3. And then after that, episode 67, our next movie review episode will be Ginger Snaps from the year 2000. So I'll go ahead and read the synopsis for that. Just to, you know, so you, you kind of know what's going on there and, uh, get that, uh, knocked out ahead of time. So you watched it before we, uh, you know, before we talk about it. Uh, the synopsis for that is two death obsessed sisters outcasts in their suburban neighborhood must deal with the tragic consequences when one of them is bitten by a deadly werewolf. Uh, that is one I've never seen. So, uh, it should be interesting to, uh, watch that and hear what everybody's got to say about it. Yeah, looking forward to it, man. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, it came out in 2000. It's been 21 years ago since it came out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's probably been a while, you know, if you haven't watched it recently. So, um, yeah, go, go ahead and get ahead of it and uh, go watch Ginger Snaps. That'll be in two weeks. But next week, like I said, our Spook Show Spotlight History of the Werewolves Part 3 comes out. So, for Donnie and Will and the Professor Smoke, I'm Josh. We are the All-American Spook Show Podcast. And come back next week. Please replace the speaker on its rack when you're ready to leave. Failure to do so will damage both the speaker and your car. We'll be grateful, and so will the patrons who follow you.